Take your Bibles with me this morning and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Thankful for our team, man. Uh, Pastor Kyle, Pastor Dave did a tremendous job these past two weeks continuing in our series of parables. Next week, Pastor Caleb is going to be preaching from our series of Caleb's. We are blessed as a church. I'm so thankful for our pastors. I'm so thankful for, again, uh, just our, our staff and our leaders. We're meeting this Wednesday for the first time as a staff, uh, all of us, uh, full-time, part-time, it'll be about 40 of us on Wednesday, really for the first time in months. And so we're praying, we're anticipating where the Lord's taking us, obviously under restrictions uh, in the fall, but we're praying for wisdom as God uh, is leading us. And so we covet your prayers in that. We come to Luke 18, and we're continuing in this series of parables, the stories that Jesus told. There's about 40 uh, in the New Testament, from Matthew 13 all, really about the last year and a half of his life. Jesus is doing nothing but teaching in parables. And for us as a team of pastors, we've kind of taken, okay, Lord, we kind of let the parameters be wide. We didn't really take a specific kind of line of the parables dealing with, we didn't really do that. We just said, let's just preach the parables of Jesus and see where the Lord leads us. And so often I stand behind this pulpit on a Sunday morning convicted. I stand behind this pulpit saying to you that this message has been for me all week long. I think one of the greatest words of encouragement you can give to a pastor is when someone says, I felt like I was the only one out there. That's great words of encouragement because our prayer, I know my prayer every week is that that the Lord would match up where I feel the Holy Spirit leading me in the text and leading me to preach, that it would match up to what he's doing in the hearts and lives of his people. And so when an individual makes that statement, that says to me also, that means the Holy Spirit is, is working in your life, is taking the text, is taking the scripture and matching that up uh, to your life. And I remember sitting out there before being like, man, I, I think I'm the only one in the room. I remember sitting out there thinking to myself, my dad had a spy follow me all week long. Like I used to think that to myself because there's no way he should be preaching this specifically to me on a Sunday morning. Let me tell you something. It's one thing to be in the room feeling like you're the only one in the room. It's another thing to be the guy preaching and yet you still feel like you're the only one in the room. There have been many a Sundays that I'm up here preaching a message and fall under complete conviction in that moment. You wanna talk about humbling. When you hear your own voice throughout the week, sharing truth from God's word that's convicting your heart, I'm not even a fan of my voice. I'm gonna be real with you, I'm not. When I was in seminary, quick story and we'll get to the text, but the story's just as, no it's not, no it's not. But the story's important. I would drive to seminary every week, uh, Southeastern Theological Seminary right outside of Raleigh, it was about three and a half hours. I would tape my notes on a cassette tape a cassette tape to younger people. It's this stuff that would have like this plastic thing. Anyway, and so I would, I would, I would take my, my notes to a cassette tape because I'm like three and a half hours. It's not the safest thing anymore, but three and a half hours driving through Emporia, South Hill, don't speed, but three and a half hours, when else am I gonna sit down for just three and a half hours and do nothing but study? So let me utilize three and a half hours. I'd make it to about Emporia. And I'd get so sick of my voice. I'd get so tired of my voice. I would critique myself because my voice and diction teacher in, in college, uh, I, I majored in communication. And I had a teacher say to me, you do not finish your words, is what she would say to me. She said, you just let your words, she was like, that's Southern, you just let your words just kind of linger is what she would say. And so when I would listen to my notes, I'm thinking to myself, he finished your words and not hearing anything that I was studying in my message. What are we doing this morning? We're gathering for our text, aren't we? What was the story? The story was what? That the Holy Spirit takes the truth of God's word and reminds us of it. Take the Bible this morning and go with me to Luke 18. I'm gonna invite you to stand this morning in reverence of reading God's word. 
the authority of scripture, right? I remember going to my dad again and saying, dad, man, I'm struggling with this calling in the ministry because who am I to stand on this pulpit and preach truths and promises that I struggle with myself? I remember that. Then who am I to stand on this pulpit and preach with authority? I remember him saying something to me that freed me up as a pastor. He said, the authority that you stand on when you preach is not your own experience and it's not your own morality. The authority that you stand on is the authority of the word of God. So I stand before you this morning, the authority of the word of God, admitting before you that I struggle in so many of these areas, that how often it is that the message that God has given to my heart is the exact same message that I'm wrestling with in my life. I know for all of our pastors, we would share that. We're on this journey with you. Life is hard. Marriage is hard. Families are hard. Circumstances are hard. And so the promises of God's word, the truth of God's word that stabilizes us, that secures us, man, we got to be intentional in it. And so when it comes to this subject right here of prayer, I've struggled with this. And I think there's a great mystery of prayer, of how can I, a human being, move the heart of God? How can I move the hand of God? And yet the Bible says that. The Bible says over 20 times in the New Testament, you have not because you ask not. Or if you do, you ask amiss, you ask flippantly, not expecting in faith for God to fulfill his promises. And so I don't know, maybe you walked in this morning struggling in some areas. You know the promises, you see the promises, you read the promises like me, you can claim the promises, but looking at your life, you're going, Lord, I'm struggling seeing this. And let's be real, a lot of it's timing. We struggle with God's timing. The promises are there, and we see that even here in reference to his second coming. The promises are there, but when will those promises be fulfilled? Can we persevere? in the waiting time. The Bible says this, beginning in verse one. Then he spoke a parable to them, chapter 18, verse, uh, or chapter 18 of the Gospel of Luke, that men always ought to pray, and here it is, not lose heart, saying there was a certain city, a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now notice the description of this judge. He did not fear God nor regard man. He's basically painting the picture of the worst possible human being you can imagine. Doesn't care about God, doesn't care about people. That's the description of this judge. And it says this, now there was also a widow. So now two characters here in this parable. There was a widow in that city and she came to him saying, get justice for me and for my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, though I do not fear God nor regard man, verse five, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her. Lest by her continual coming, she weary me. The the translation here is that she's wearing me out that she is coming to me every day and she's wearing me out, so I'm just gonna give her what she's asking just so that she'll leave me alone. It's kind of the picture that's being painted here. Verse six, then the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said. Verse seven, shall God not avenge, may this sink deep into your hearts, the elect, the believers, Christians, who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, here's the question. Will he really find this type of faith upon this earth? Join with me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for truth. Lord, how desperate we are of truth. In the world that we live in, Lord, with so many things flying around us, Lord, may the lens that we look through first be the lens of truth. And so, Lord, this morning, may your word be the lens that we look at our lives, our situation, our circumstances, Lord, we recognize that you are in all things. Nothing in our lives is separate 
from the work that you do in us. And so Lord, you use all things. And so Lord, whatever we walked in here this morning, you desire to use in our lives, to draw us to you. If there's one here who does not know you, you wanna use those things in their lives to present yourself to them. For us as believers, how easy it is for us to lose heart. And we know that that's when our eyes are taken off of you and placed upon the things around us. And so Lord, this morning, there may be some here we're losing heart or have lost heart. May you lift our eyes in this place and may the promises of your word sustain us. We pray it, we ask it in Christ's name. And all of God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. I've shared you, with you guys before about this. You know, now that live sports are coming on, for, for the longest time we didn't have to worry about this. Uh, but now that live sports are coming on, one of my pet peeves has always been finding out the score of a game beforehand. Like it's always been my pet peeve. When I was a youth pastor, my, my, my students used to think it was funny on Wednesday nights to hold up the scores of the Carolina game while I'm teaching a Bible study. Like they thought that was funny and I would rebuke them. And, and, and anyway, so it, it wasn't funny. It would upset me. But let me tell you what it would do. I would go home knowing the end of the game, knowing the end of the score, but I'd still watch the game because I want to see how it all played out. But what it would do is this, rather than riding this wave of emotions, like this team makes a run and that team makes a run, rather than getting all caught up too far into it, I was pretty stabilized knowing that my Tar Heels were going to win in the end. And so how we got there, I wasn't sure, but I knew that somehow the end result would be what I already knew to be true. Now that was critical, that was key. It sustained me, it stabilized me. And so what you find here is Jesus teaching on his second coming, that's what you find. If you back up to chapter 17 of Luke, you see the context of what's happening here. He's talking to his disciples in verse 22. The Pharisees are once again questioning Jesus as they always do. You keep talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. Well, what exactly does that mean? And so he's given this full discourse in Luke chapter 17 about his second coming, that like lightning from the sky, Jesus will appear. No man knows the day, no man knows the hour. He says families will be separated, husbands and wives will be separated, children will be separated, and it will fall a line between those who know Christ and those who don't. That there's no in between. And so he's telling them that, hey, the first time I've come, I've gotta die. But when I ascend into heaven, there'll be the second coming. And so he's given them this long passage of explaining to them that I'm gonna go the first time, but I'm gonna return. And so all of that transitions into verse one. Look at verse one of Luke 18. Then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not too hard, lose heart. Now, this is how this worked out. For some of us as our pastors, there's been parables that they felt the Lord leading them to that really the, the main point was something that they really had to kind of wrestle with. Well, the Lord's made it very easy for me this morning. He's given us the key to the entire parable in verse one. So the key's on the outside of the door. Already we know before we even walk into the parable what it is that Jesus is trying to teach. That's critical. He says it right up front. Look at what he says in verse one. Then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to praise and not what? Lose now again, this is specific to the second coming, but let's be real here, because we're told all throughout other portions of scripture that we are to pray and not lose heart. Not just in anticipation of his return, but in resting in the promises that he's already declared. And if you're anything like me, right, it's one thing to read it, it's one thing to set your mind to it, but hey, days go by, weeks go by, months go by. There are some of you here in this place this morning, years go by. 
God, do you hear me? Do you see me? One of my favorite characters of the Old Testament is Joseph, but the story of Joseph is a hard story in Genesis, right? 13 years is a long time to be locked in prison. 13 years, not for doing something that was wrong, but for doing the right thing. But out of God's sovereignty, it was exactly where the Lord had him to be. There was a place that God had to put him in order to bring him to the place that he was desiring to bring him. That before he could get him to the palace, right, he had to take him to the pit. And for us, we don't always get to see that full version. We're living our lives day to day. We're trying to understand, God, why are you allowing this? Why are you allowing that? But the Lord sees the end result. So he says, don't lose heart. That we have a God that keeps his promises, that we have a God who is faithful. Well, let's be real, and I stand before you as your pastor. Easier said than done. So what is key? Pray. What is that? Put your eyes, fix your eyes, seek the Lord. Now, that's the critical part of this entire parable, that in order for us to not lose heart, what must we be doing? We must consistently, persistently seek the face of Christ. Because let me tell you what happens, right? If you're not going there first, then your mind naturally, your eyes naturally are going to all the other things that this world has, this world says, and even that your flesh desires. And so the beginning point is key. Now let's get into the parable. He identifies the setting. He identifies the characters. Two characters. Verse 2, there was a certain city, a judge, who did not fear God, did not respect man, and there was a widow in that city. Again, all of like the parables, it means to cast alongside is what the word really means. And so what is it? Jesus cast alongside uh, earthly situations, earthly scenarios with spiritual truths. And so he's speaking in terms that the audience would understand. You know, you look at all the parables. These are things that immediately in the setting and the characters, they would go, oh, I recognize that. Well, this is no different. Widows, obviously, all throughout Israel. Luke has a lot to say about widows. God's word has a lot to say about uh, widows, Old Testament and new. They were key throughout Israel. They were very seen throughout Israel. Judges. Well, this was something that someone would relate to right away. Immediately, they probably think of somebody like, yeah, that's Judge Jenkins. He's a corrupt judge. That guy down in that city over there. They would relate to this story. And this was a common theme, corrupt judges and widows. This was something that they experienced every single day. Don't miss the description of this judge. Again, look at what it says in verse 2. It's the description that Jesus, if you think about this in all of his parables, he goes to extremes. When he paints the picture of these characters, right, think about the prodigal son, right? When, when, we, when he talks to these he goes to extremes in explaining the character. Well, he does the same thing here. He describes basically the worst human being imaginable. Here it is, second part of verse two. There was a certain city, in a certain city there was a judge, here it is, who did not fear God and did not respect me. And the word respect means shame. And so what he's basically saying is this, is that here's this judge that could care less about the laws of God. Here's this judge that could care less about holiness, our righteousness, our justice. And even beyond that, he has no shame before men. That's what it's saying. There. That he has no respect for men, but he has no shame before men. So it's basically the worst possible situation. Here's a guy, doesn't care about God, could care less about people, and now he's put in a position of authority? Again, these are characters that these people could understand, they could identify with. This dude is so corrupt, and in verse 4, he even admits it. Look at what it says there. He said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man. That's a different level of corruption, right? If, if someone's opinion of you is one thing, and you hear that, and you're like, what? 
you think I'm a jerk? I'm so sorry. But if you hear that and you say, yeah, I'm a jerk, like that's a whole nother ballgame there, right? When you accept it at that level, that's a whole nother. So he even accepts the fact that he is the way that he is. Now, there was strict instruction given to judges. You go back to the Old Testament, Jehoshaphat, the king, they gave strict instruction to judges of how they were to care and even show mercy to widows. Any judge in Israel, in any city, I know this is a make-believe story that Jesus is painting, but any judge who was serving in this capacity would have understood the commands of the Old Testament. They would have understood the commands of Jehoshaphat. They would have understood the commands to, to, to uphold justice. It says at the end of 2 Chronicles 19.7, it says this, let the fear of God be upon you. Be care- very careful what you do for the Lord. Our God will have no part in unrighteousness, injustice, partiality, or taking a bribe. And so all the way up front, that's given. If you're serving in this position, you stand before God, you're serving as a judge for God, and you are to take no bribe, there's to be no corruption, no unrighteousness. It's interesting that even in Jesus' time, I saw this in a separate writing. It's not, it, was a, it was a writing outside of the Bible that was describing even the setting of the time that Jesus was ministering in. That even in this time, judges were so corrupt. Again, you know, there's Roman rule and they've taken over their land. They're caused, uh, uh, claiming, uh, requiring taxes of the people. I mean, it is a corrupt, bad situation. And in response to that, you have these corrupt judges that are making decisions. And this would have been a scenario that would have played out all the time. And it's interesting that in Jesus' time, the Hebrew phrase that, that, that was this phrase, a judge dealing with the law, they would change the last letter of that Hebrew phrase so that it would be translated a judge who is a robber. Like it was an issue in their time. And so as Jesus is painting this picture, this parable, the, uh, the people understood what was happening here. Now, again, remember this. You'll remember this from the prodigal son. This is a shame, honor society, just as it is today. You do everything you can to uphold honor to your family, uphold honor to your community. I mean, even to the point of of, of there's death involved if it upholds honor. It's a shame honor society, right? And we know that if you grew up like I did, I did, sometimes our actions are tried to be motivated by our parents by shame. You ever had your mom say, you ought to be? My mom would say that to me and I think to myself, I ought to be, but I'm not really. You ought to be ashamed, or shame on you. Like, we don't really use that too much anymore. But this man had no shame. And now we come to second character. Look at verse three. Here comes this widow. And she came to him saying, notice what she says, get justice for me. It means vindicate me. Get justice for me from my adversary. Now, a couple of things right up front. The fact that she's the one approaching him says something to us. Just as it is today. You know, women in many ways were honored, respected, but they were powerless, especially in the courts. A woman did not go to the courts. This was something that was done by the men. And so this tells us something. She had not one man in her life, not one nephew, not one brother, not one son-in-law, not one anything, because if there was any relation to any male in her family, he would be the one who would go to this judge. So the fact that she is the one approaching this judge day in and day night says something about the lowly state that she is in. Jesus is painting a picture that this woman is alone. She represents the destitute, the powerless, the helpless, the deprived, the unknown, the unloved. She represents this picture of us. And see this. She's asking for protection because she's been defrauded. She basically says, vindicate me. My life depends upon the right decision. 
She's asking for legal protection. Look at what happens here in verse four. And he would not for a while. Like that again just shows the hardness of this dude's heart. He had no love for God, no compassion for people. Here's a widow, a widow who has no man in her life and even it doesn't even move his heart. That's not what moves his heart. Notice what moves his heart. But afterward, he said within himself, though I do not fear God nor regard man, well, at least he's honest, verse five, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, I will vindicate her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. I love verse five. Let me read verse five again. I love this. Yet because this widow troubles me, I will vindicate her, lest by her continual, notice that word continual, it can be translated forever, He's basically saying this, okay? I'm not motivated by my love for God or by God's standards or by God's law. I'm motivated by the fact that you're a widow all alone. I'm not motivated by any of those things. I'm motivated by my own selfish intentions that you are driving me crazy. You are wearing me out. The translation here in the Greek language is that she is wearing me out. That she's gonna do this forever. That she's not going anywhere. That's the picture in the language here. It's kind of a, a little bit more tempered down for us in the English. But if you really go to the original language, it's this picture of, man, she's beating me to death. It's the same word that Paul uses when he speaks of even physically beating himself. If you go to, what is it, 1 Corinthians 9, 27, he says this, I strike a blow to my body and make it a slave that I may offer it to Christ after I preach. He is speaking of this, 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 this bondage. He's speaking of this, this attack against him. It's the same word that's being used here. That she wears me out. That I will respond to her, not out of love, just simply to get rid of her. Look at verse five. Yet because the widow troubles me, I will avenge her. I will execute justice on her behalf. And so there's the story. You have verse two down to verse five. It's the story of a widow that is persevering, this widow that will not leave this unrighteous judge alone. What's the point? Back up to verse one. Then he spoke a parable to them. Okay, let's unpack this a little bit. Who's them? Go to chapter 17, if you would, the chapter before, and let's look who to them are. It's verse 22. Verse 22, then he said to his disciples, what's he talking about? Back up two verses to verse 20. Now, when he was asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God would come. And so he's speaking specifically in context to his second coming. He's saying, listen, just as I came the first time, I'm gonna leave and I'm gonna come again. And there's gonna be a delay there, right? We didn't know, right? I mean, for God's people have been looking for the return of Christ for 2000 years. But he says, listen, if I make the promise, the promise will be fulfilled. If the promise has been declared, the promise will be revealed. The time. He says, do not lose heart in the midst of time. In the midst of your suffering. In the midst as believers that we look upon a world and say, how can God allow me to be persecuted? How can God allow this evil and this injustice to go by with no one even recognizing? He says, hey, don't lose heart. There will come a time where there will be perfect justice, righteous justice that will be displayed by the heart of God. So don't lose heart. Hold fast. Because a promise given by God is a promise that cannot be broken. Now, I see this in the context, obviously, of what he's speaking of in the second coming, but man, I see this in the context of all the promises of God. I don't know about you how easy it is to lose heart, right? And we lose heart when we're not praying, when we're not putting our eyes intentionally upon Jesus because our eyes naturally go to everything else. 
And if your eyes are naturally on everything else, just understand you're going to be frustrated. You're going to be discouraged. You're going to be anxious. You're going to be worried about how tomorrow is going to play out. But when you rest your mind on the end of the story, you know the end of the story. It stabilizes you even in the storms of your life. He says, don't lose heart. But pray. Seek me. Right, Matthew 6, seek ye first, say it with me, the kingdom of God, right? The rule of God, the authority of God. What's the kingdom? It's the rule of a king. Seek ye first the rule of a king, the authority of God and his righteousness. And so what am I called to seek? I am called to seek the rule of the king of my life and his righteousness and his holiness. And that's my sole responsibility right there. And if I'm doing those things, God has promised. Man, peace that surpasses understanding joy that can't be touched by this world, fulfillment that nothing in this world can measure up to. But let's be real, man, right? Unless you're in the Lord, this happens naturally. If you walked in this morning and you go back to the disciplines of this past week and you weren't in the Lord, guess what? You walked in here losing heart. You did. Because there's no idle moment, right? We're either moving to the Lord, Lord, seek ye first the kingdom of God, Lord, may I die to myself so that Christ may live. We're either doing those things, seeking truth, seeking the lens of God's word, reflecting upon promises that have already been given, that, hey, I know the end of the story. Christ has risen. He's won the victory of death, sin, and the grave. I know the end of the story. Guess what? My eyes are up upon him. But when that's not the case, the eyes naturally are dropped. At least it is in my own life. may not be the case for you. But I can go back to the last week of my life and look at even the disciplines of seeking the Lord, and I can tell you where my mind is. Pray and do not lose heart. And he says in verse six, hear what the unjust judge says. And so here's Jesus saying, pay attention to what this judge says. And so he's contrasting something, right? He is painting a picture of the worst possible person and now the exact opposite. He says, God is not like this judge. As a matter of fact, he is the opposite of this judge. That if this judge would do what is right eventually just to get her off his back, how much more will a God who is righteous and holy and sovereign and perfect do to meet the needs of his own children? Here it is, verse seven. See the contrast. And shall God not avenge his own elect? who cry out, maybe you can relate to this this morning, day and night to them, though he bears long with them. He's doing again this least to greatest comparison, that here's a picture of the least possible person. Doesn't care for God, doesn't care for people, is not motivated even by shame, could care less. Even he does what is right, eventually, just because the woman is wearing him out. But now we have God, the exact opposite. It was our father. How many fathers in this place? What would you do for your child? How many mothers in this place? What would you do for your child? A little bit different than what this judge would do for this widow. And he says, why, if you being sinful, moms and dads, would provide for the needs of your children, how much more our heavenly father who is perfect and righteous and without sin do for his own children? And as believers, I want you to see this. We're represented here by this widow. 
right? In a sense, we are helpless. In a sense, we are at the mercy of our judge. But again, see the contrast here. This judge is not like our God. This judge is the opposite of our God because God always does what is right. Hear what I'm saying? God always does what is right. God always is compassionate and merciful and gracious and tenderhearted and kind. And hear me this morning in the circumstances that you are in. God is always good. Allow that to sink in for a moment. He cannot be. Doesn't mean all the events of our lives are good. But our God is good. And he uses everything in our lives to draw us to him, right? There's a work in all of our lives. If you know Christ in your life, man, if you have a relationship with him, then understand that there's a lifelong pursuit of you. That he's pursuing you just as he's pursuing me with the desire to purify us to change us from what we used to be to be like Jesus. He'll use all things. He'll use the struggles of your marriage. He'll use physical sickness. He'll use tragedy. He'll use death. But when you know the end of the story, when you know the God that has made these promises, it changes them. He says, verse seven, shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night? Same word that is being used there, vindication. Shall God not make vindication for his children? And he says what? Do not lose heart who cry out day and night. For the Lord sees you. I mean, this second coming, like it's in the context of praying for his return. And I've been so convicted all week. This has been one of those Sundays where I stand before you and I think to myself, man, I've been sitting out there all week. So it's kind of like, y'all need to hear this because the Lord's just been wearing me out with the same verb there, wearing me out with this. Like, do I pray? Asking for Christ to return? I mean, do I pray? Saying, Lord, come now? Do I pray, Lord, I seek the, the, the time where you establish your kingdom and, and you judge uh, sin and you judge uh, justice righteously? Do I pray that? God, make my path smooth. God, remove these obstacles. I saw this quote this past week, man, and it hit me between my eyes. It said this, a pastor said, I don't think you can live your Christian life the way the Lord wants you to live unless you live it in sight and anticipation of his second coming. And I'd never seen this before. If you go to 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, Acts 17 gives us uh, the counter of that, of what's happening behind the scenes. In Acts 17, it says that the Holy Spirit led Paul to Thessalonica. And in Acts 17, it says three Sabbaths. What are three Sabbaths? Someone tell me, all you great theologians out here, three Sabbaths is equivalent to how many weeks? A Sabbath is a Saturday, it's one day a week. So it's how many weeks? Three? Three weeks. All right, y'all aren't math geniuses out here. Sorry, gave you too much credit. Now we know through other contexts and piecing together, he was there, I believe, longer than three weeks. I believe Paul was probably there about three or four months. But you want to talk about a daunting task? Hey, Paul, you have three to four months. Here's a body of believers, right? There's a Jewish synagogue there, but it's mostly a pagan town, mostly Gentiles. And so three months to go teach theologically the story of Jesus. If that was given to us as pastors, I thought about this, Kyle, if that was given to us, like where would we start? Like, where would we go? Like, what would be the emphasis of where we spend our time? It's interesting. This is your homework assignment for this week. First and second Thessalonians. 
Go read First and Second Thessalonians. I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna give you some help. Take your Bibles real quick this morning. I want you to see something. I want you to see the main theme of this book. What do you think it is? It's the second coming of Christ. Listen to this. In First Thessalonians, let me just read you a couple of verses here. Chapter one, right off the launch pad, verse eight says this. For from you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare discerning great zeal for you and for those who are in Laodicea and for those who are in Hyopolis. So go to chapter two. I want you to see this. Go to verse 19. For what is our hope? What is our joy? Our crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming. What you find all throughout these two books is teachings upon the second coming of Jesus. That, hey, these believers are gonna be persecuted. These believers are gonna struggle. Keep in mind, Jesus is returning. Keep in mind the end of the story. Keep in mind the grave is empty. And he says, listen, if that's upon your heart, if that's upon your mind, you're not gonna lose heart. You're gonna persevere because you know that your God has declared this and he would cease to be God if this promise was broken. You ever heard the phrase, I won't take no for an answer? It's this picture of this widow who says, this is what the law says. You are required to uphold this. And this unrighteous judge, the only motivation, not his love for God, our reverence for God, or even his love for her, our compassion for her being all alone, his only motivation was to get rid of you. I will vindicate you. God says, man, if this guy will approach her out of selfish motivation, do you think our God doesn't hear us day and night? When we cry out for justice and we cry out, for deliverance, how easy it is in that place to lose heart. Look at verse seven, he shall God, shall God not avenge his own elect to cry out day and night. Now look at what it says here, though he bears long with them. The word translated there is though he is patient with them. What is Luke saying? Luke is saying the exact same thing that Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Look at this verse. It says, Beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. He's saying, hey, he's not delaying because he's just chilling on the couch. That's not what he's doing. He's not delaying because he's slack upon his promise. But why is he delaying? Why is he patient? It's the exact same thing that Luke tells us in this parable. Let's finish the verse. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, but is patient toward sinners, is what that says. Is patient toward sinners, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance and faith. Why has Christ delayed his return? Because of the patience of God because of the long-suffering of God towards sinners. There will come a time when Christ will return and there won't be another opportunity. But the long-suffering and the patience of God in the delay of the return of Christ, more hearts, more lives, will be turned to the saving grace and knowledge of a relationship with Christ. And then here's the promise, verse eight. I tell you that he will avenge. He doesn't call us to avenge. I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Translation, suddenly. Nevertheless, here's the question that Jesus presents to his disciples. It's the question presented to you and it's the question presented to me. 
when the son of man comes, will he really find this earth, this faith upon the earth? And it hit me between the eyes open. If he came today, how would he find me? That if he came today, what would I be consumed by? What would be filling my mind? If he came today, right now in this moment, ask this question, take some inventory. If he came right now, what kind of heart would he arrive to? Would he find a widow who says, man, I am longing for you. I'm calling for you. I cry out day and night. Or will you find people who consider themselves and call themselves Christians, but really have no interest in what it means to live for the Lord? Would you really find a heart that says above the things of this world, you're gonna find a heart that desires you? That above the questions that I have about this world and about this pandemic and social injustice, that above all of those questions and chaos, would he still find a heart and a mind that's fixed upon him? That would he still find in the midst of talk radio and election year where our minds want to go here and there, would he still find a heart, mind, and life that is centered upon the promises of the Lord Jesus Christ? That if I came today, would I find the faith like this widow with every head bowed and every eye closed? He says, you know how it's going to end. Be the first coming, which I will come to die. I will come as a substitute. I will come to fill the wrath and the judgment of a holy God. And I will die in your place upon a cross. And then after my physical death, there will be victory. He's proclaimed it already to them. He's already announced to them that, hey, it's not going to end there. The disciples still didn't get it. They were still freaking out even at his death. But all the way leading up, he was telling them, it's not going to end there. I will return. And guess what he did? He returned. And he tells them, guess what? It's not going to end there either. I will depart and I'll be away, but I'm coming again. Now, you don't know when. Only the Father knows when. When I come, will I find you yearning for me? Will I find you desiring me? Here's a good question. Will I find a life that is consumed by me? Will I find a life consumed by everything else in this world? Will there be faith like this widow found by the Lord Jesus Christ? Pray and don't lose heart. I invite you to stand with me right where you are as we go to the Lord in prayer. Join with me as we pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you this morning. And Lord, first and foremost, Lord, we thank you for your grace, your mercy. We recognize your word teaches and we understand for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us in this place, we are sinners. By nature, we are sinners by choice. Forgive us of that, Lord. But Lord, it's the bad news that sets us up for the good news, the gospel, that although we can do nothing to pay that debt, to earn a right relationship with you, we can rest in the fact that Christ did it for us. We thank you for this Jesus that we read his words this morning, 
who proclaimed what he was going to do, that he was going to die, but that he was going to rise, and he did. And so, Lord, this morning, we hold to the promise of even Luke 17, 22, that he is coming again. We believe that. May we live our lives in anticipation of that. As the church, may that be central to our thinking and understanding, especially in the times that we are in. Rather than being overwhelmed by the circumstances of 2020, Lord, may we be overwhelmed by the promises of you. And when you return, may you find your people eagerly awaiting the reign and the rule of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, you use all things. And so, Lord, I pray if there's one here this morning who is outside of a relationship with Christ. Lord, if they are still in their sins, your word tells us that if they die in their sins, they will die in judgment before you. And so Lord, I pray this morning, if there was one who has never by your grace and faith called upon the name of Jesus, Lord, may you open their heart and mind to see that we stand in one of two places. We stand in Jesus, covered by the blood, or outside of Jesus, standing in direct opposition to your throne. And there's nothing we can do to bridge that gap. We thank you for Jesus who did it for us. And Lord, as we await and rest upon your promises and his return, may we not lose heart. Lord, I pray for maybe believers in this place who are discouraged. Maybe they've been seeking you specifically on something for years. May we pray and not lose heart. You are perfect, you are all wise, you are all knowing, Lord, you are sovereign. We rest in that. We pray it, we ask it in Jesus' name and all God's people said.